Good afternoon, friends. Happy Wednesday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary. A lot to get to here this afternoon. 403-974-8255 is our telephone number. I will tell you more about what's coming up on the program as we go along here this afternoon. But I want to begin today with a conversation around medical assistance in dying. So it's been seven years now since this became legal in Canada, and that followed a Supreme Court of Canada decision that struck down the previous criminal prohibition of medical assistance in dying. Now, Canada is on the cusp of some pretty major changes to the criteria around medical assistance in dying. So I think it's important that we understand what the reality in Canada has become and what is it that we're opening the door to. So we've got new data new numbers. Now, each of these numbers represents an individual. Each of these numbers represents an individual's choice to utilize, to make use of, access to medical assistance in dying. So these numbers have risen. So last year, 2022, according to Health Canada, 13,241 people uh, died, uh, made use of, of medical assistance in dying. Since 2016, the total number is 44,958. The uh, 2022 numbers represent an increase of 31.2% over the year before. In fact, medical assistance in dying, those deaths accounted for 4.1% of all deaths in Canada in 2022. Uh, so what do we make of that? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts is someone who has been watching all of this uh, unfold very closely and uh, has some concerns about perhaps the path we're on here. Trudell Lemons is a professor and school chair in health, law, and policy, the Faculty of Law, University of Toronto. Uh, professor Lemons, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, good afternoon, Rob. Uh, when we look at these numbers, how, how should we make sense of that? I mean, or how should we view that in your view? Well, it depends uh, really on the position that you take uh, to this, uh, but I would say <laughs> it's it's hard to deny that we have stunning a stunning number of uh, assisted uh, deaths in the country. So, uh, in other countries, they call they refer to this as euthanasia and assisted suicide. Most of our cases are cases of euthanasia. So, in a period of uh, five six years, we actually have bypassed. Um, the most liberal regimes in the world, particularly Belgium and the Netherlands, uh, we're more or less uh, on average in, in Canada as a whole at the level of the Netherlands, but we're bypassing Belgium uh, in, in terms of the proportion of people who die by medical assistance and dying. And, um, and it's a very rapid increase uh, and an increase which I would say clearly indicates that this is not the kind of exceptional procedure that uh, even if you read the Supreme Court decision in Carter when they were talking about the fact that there may, that there was a need, that so they said the, an absolute prohibition on euthanasia assist suicide is unconstitutional, uh, but they emphasized that that in exceptional circumstances, as as in the case that they had in, in before them, they felt that there had to be some form of access to uh, assisted dying provided by a physician uh, or help by a physician to die, and. And I would say if you have uh, close to uh, to 5% now of uh, the percentage of people who die by assisted dying, um, it's no longer an exceptional procedure. So that's, that, that I think is, is clear. Another thing that I would say is striking is the huge uh, disparities or the differences between the different provinces. Mm -hmm. So if you take uh, Quebec, for example, 6.6% of people now die by medical assistance and dying. British Columbia, you have 5.5%. These are, in terms of jurisdictions, the highest percentages in the world. Uh, we have other other um, provinces like uh, Alberta, uh, where it's uh, where it's much lower. Where we, but we're, we're at 2.6%, which is in and of itself already high compared to, say, the assisted suicide regimes that we. Uh, we have in the United States and in New Zealand and Australia, but it's clearly significantly lower in Alberta and in Saskatchewan and in Manitoba than in uh, Quebec and and um, NBC. So some people say, oh, it's just a question of of you know being having access to it and and people choosing this. Right. But but if you look at the criteria of the law, the law still requires uh, 
that the person has to have an irremediable medical condition that causes intolerable suffering, and there must be an irreversible decline of capabilities. And these are access criteria, but also safeguards. Um, well, I, my question then immediately is, is there so significantly more irremediable medical illness that, in other words, that cannot be dealt with adequately? Is there so much more intolerable suffering in Quebec and BC than in Alberta and and um, and uh, Saskatchewan. So, I, I, from my perspective, from somebody who works on on the regulation of uh, professional practices and who has cautioned about uh, an all too easy expansion of this practice, I think it's it's uh, worrisome. Should, should we be surprised by these increases? We go back uh, in 2017, for example, there was about 2,800 uh, cases of medical assistance in dying. It's now over 13,000. That, that is a significant increase, but is this maybe what we, we should have expected? Uh, yeah, so, um, I mean, I have to state up front that I supported the original legislation, which was a response to a Supreme Court decision. Mm -hmm. I argued, uh, even as an expert witness for the government in the Quebec Truchon case and NBC case, uh, that there was reason why you would want to uh, have as a safeguard um, end of life situation. So in other words, that this is an exceptional procedure that is meant to facilitate the dying process and people who are in, you know, approaching their death. Yeah. Uh, now the government has has expanded that, and I would say even under the previous law, we had we had as a criteria, which was supposed to be a safeguard, a reasonable, foreseeable natural death. So people had to be approaching their natural death, but it was already interpreted so widely that we've seen people receiving medical assistance and dying in sometimes troubling circumstances uh, of intersecting poverty, problems with accessing timely care, and people giving up. And um, and so I'm not saying that these are the majority of cases, but um, it's clear that we have a, a, a stunning increase, which is associated with flexible interpretation of already broad criteria. We now have an expansion outside of the end-of-life context. Yeah. Uh, we we also have as a unique as a unique rule uh, because there is no liberal. Uh, so Belgium and Netherlands are the other. I would say the, the two other major liberal regimes out there. They require that physicians agree that there are no other medical options left. In Canada, somehow we have turned medical assistance in dying into uh, something that is available, even if. Other medical options are available, but people may not access them because there may be wait times or or people refuse them for often reasons that are unclear because, uh, I mean, when we're dealing with significant illness and disability, people are often unsure, people are, people may, may be giving up too quickly. So instead of the medical professionals being obliged to say to patients, well, I can't ac give access to that unless we there is no other medical option left. Here in Canada, we've introduced in the law, and the government has been warned about that, Parliament has been warned about that, we have introduced a rule that people can refuse all forms of care and still uh, insist of having medical assistance and dying. One of the numbers uh, in, in this Health Canada report that stands out, so there were 463 cases last year, so that's 3.5% of the total, where the person's natural death was not reasonably foreseeable. And you alluded to this in terms of the criteria as it's been laid out. And as we expand that criteria, I imagine that that number would would rise. So what do we make of, of the increasing portion proportion of cases where, where natural death is not reasonably foreseeable? Yeah, so, um, yes, indeed, I mean, it's an important thing. So last year, we didn't have a full year where the law allowed medical assistance outside of the end-of-life context, and we had 2.2% of 10,000. Now we have 3.5% of 13,000, which is several hundreds of people who normally under... Uh, without this this medical assistance dying provision, uh, most of them would, would likely have been alive. And so these are now dead. I mean, is it because they were suffering unbearably? Obviously, that's the, uh, that, that are the access criteria. But if you then look also at um, some of the reasons why um, people receive medical assistance in dying, uh, there are broad categories. For example, there's a category 
which in the Health Canada report is stated as made made for other conditions. And this is, I would say, uh, for me, a red flag that we see in there, frailty. 25% uh, of people who receive this for other conditions. And actually, uh, I have to clarify. So 17% out of the um, 13,000 people, so 17 out of 13,000 received medical assistance in dying for other conditions than, say, cancer, heart condition, and so on. So we have in that broad category, frailty, 25%, diabetes, 11%, chronic pain, uh, osteoarthritis, osteoporosis, fractures, vision and hearing loss, um, frequent falls. So many things, actually, that people who are elderly often suffer from. Now, in Belgium and the Netherlands, and again, this is something I testified about in the Truchon case, I testified about how in Belgium, uh, they at one point, they started seeing increasing numbers of people uh, who were receiving euthanasia, who were not approaching their death, and who were characterized as having uh, so-called uh, 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 polypathology, and it's the same other conditions, general frailty. Uh, and I would say in Belgium as well, but I, I would say the same. So I agree with the commentators in Belgium who said, this sounds like a medicalization of old age. Yeah. They're starting to say to elder people, here you have medical assistant dying, you suffer from all these difficult things, your life, you're, you're, so we're sending the message in a way, your life is terrible. We can we can offer you a way to uh, out of your suffering. It's interesting. So, uh, starting in March, this is when the the um, the criteria expands. Uh, so, would would include those who who are suffering from mental illness. Now, there's a lot of concern about how far we're going. Last week, uh, all parties in in the House of Commons agreed to recall a special joint committee that's going to provide some further oversight. So what do you make of, of the, the pace we're going at here and what we might be opening the door to uh, come March of next year? Yes. So uh, unlike uh, the government, which has supported this expansion outside of the in the context of mental health. So when people with with mental health as a sole condition will have access to medical assistance dying. Uh, and uh, unlike the government and some uh, and an official advisory committee that that it set up, which said that, oh, this will only be in exceptional cases, I would say there is nothing in the law that clarifies that this will only be given when all other forms of treatment have been tried out and people have been suffering for years from mental illness, it will be broadly available and it will really be driven, I fear, by uh, potential individual psychiatrists who perhaps well-meaning, but who have this vision that this is what people with mental illness should have access to as a form of relief of suffering. And many in the health community uh, many health, mental health care providers are really concerned that this will uh, lead, and, and in, this has happened in Belgium and Netherlands, not in huge numbers, but again, in Belgium and Netherlands, this, the law is more severe because physicians have to agree that there are no other medical options left, which is which hasn't been interpreted in this way in the, in the Canadian context. So we will have people who are maybe applying because of, of severe depression, schizophrenia, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, perhaps even uh, persons, uh, although this is de this debated whether this is should be constructed as a mental illness, but people with autism, cognitive disabilities, name it. Mm -hmm. Broad category of people who who are struggling with mental illness and who may feel uh, wrongly often because mental health care, if mental health care is available, they, most of them will recover. They may wrongly perceive them themselves as being without hope and may be applying for MAID, and it will depend on who they will be seeing, whether they will be receiving MAID or not. We'll see where this all goes from here. Professor Lemons, appreciate your insight on all of this. Thanks so much for joining us here this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you Fantastic. for having me. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Trudeau Lemons, uh, professor and school chair in health law and policy, the Faculty of Law, University of Toronto. So some thoughts on, on these numbers that we have now today from Health Canada, kind of where this whole debate is going. It feels like maybe we're going too far too fast. I, I get that each case is, is an individual and an individual decision. And, and maybe there's some level of indifference that the rest of us should feel. Like, should we have a preference that the numbers should be this or that? And that's what I mean by, by indifference. But 
the fact that they've risen so dramatically is something we should be cautious about as we move forward. Is there really that much more suffering today than there was uh, in 2017 or 2018? Or is there really more suffering in some provinces than in others? So what do we make of those increases and those differences? But at the end of the day, I mean, yeah, I I agree. I mean, the, the criminal prohibition on medical assistance in dying was wrong and it was cruel. And, and it was proper that it be struck down. Uh, dying with dignity should be an option available to people. I had a text here from someone who says, thank heavens for me. I give my husband the dignity and peace of mind of choosing when he was to die. He had terminal cancer, right? And it's, it's hard to see how anyone would or could object to that. And I don't think that's what we're talking about when we talk about going too far. But I, I do wish maybe our, our, our politicians would be more cautious in how we approach this. Hey, welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you. Our telephone number here, 403-974-8255, 974-TALK. We're in a couple of weeks into a new NHL season. Uh, last night was, what were they calling it, the Frozen Frenzy. All 32 teams were in action. Uh, things not going so well at the moment for Calgary's team or for that matter, either of Alberta's teams. But of course, behind the scenes, there's been a lot of talk about the business of hockey uh, efforts to try to secure a new arena for Calgary, which I think has has shown the the other side of this. It's not just about the game. It's not just about what takes place on the ice. I mean, hockey is a business. Professional sports is a business, a big business. When it comes to hockey, though, I think what's maybe unique about hockey more so than some of the other big sports leagues in North America, you know, the Canadian roots of this game. And I guess the bigger the business grows, maybe the less Canadian it becomes. And what's the impact of all of that? Well, this is explored in an interesting new book. It's called A Whole New Game, Economics, Politics, and the Transformation of the Business of Hockey in Canada. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon is the uh, author of the book, Neil Longley, joins us, uh, Professor Emeritus in the Eisenberg School of Management, University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, also a Director of Business at Nevada State University. Neil, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Uh, great to be on the program, Rob. So talk about your own interest uh, in, in this subject and, and how you got uh, down this path of, of the, you know, the history and, and the economics and the politics of all of this. Right. The, uh, well, lifelong hockey fan. I think that's, that's the first thing for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, followed the game since I was a child. And, and I've been very fortunate to be able to uh, link my interest in the game with my work uh, as an economist. And, and, yes, I've spent much of my career studying uh, the economics of professional sport league, particularly focusing on hockey, and uh, you know, as a Canadian, uh, really looking at what has happened in Canada over the past half century, and the same thing in looking at, at, at hockey, and uh, those two are very linked in my mind. And I think from 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 my perspective in the book, that's that's a, a major theme that runs through this is, is that. Uh, Canada and hockey do not operate in isolation. There's there's a the social, political, economic uh, history of Canada is very linked with major changes we've seen in the game and the business of hockey in Canada over the past half century. Yeah, as you said, I mean, you know, professional sports these days is big business, whether it's, you know, soccer, football, basketball, baseball, or hockey. But what's different or what's unique about the game of hockey in this context? The, what's different is is that compared to, you know, sports economists, we like to look at the, the big four pro leagues in North America. Mm-hmm. And hockey is fundamentally different because it's a transnational league and yeah we we do have the blue jays in major league baseball but really we have the roots of the game as you said in canada it's really part of our fabric the origins are here the origin of the nhl is in canada Uh, but the game and the business of the game uh you know has has very much shifted south of the border and that isn't recent this has been going on for literally for decades and and i do compare um, hockey in Canada with, let's say, soccer in England. And I see some similarities there in that in both cases, um, you know, 
is the, really the spiritual home of the uh, of the game. It's really a, a singular focus almost of, of fans in those two countries. Yeah. Uh, and all of Europe, really. And many of those countries, if not most of them, have kind of jealously guarded the domestic game. And, and even smaller countries, they may see some of their players migrate to, to leagues in, in, uh, in larger countries. But the domestic part of the game is always jealously guarded. And I think it, with hockey in Canada and the NHL, uh, that no longer exists. And some of that has just simply been a natural evolution. Some of it has been you know, much more intentional in terms of how that business grew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you know, Toronto and Montreal are still, you know, two two of the probably the most valuable teams in the NHL uh, markets that are yeah. big and, and have some clout. But yeah, I mean, it's it's largely become about you know the you know the vast audience in the United States growing in American markets. So the, the shift has very much been you know southward, hasn't it? It, it has been, and uh, you know, as, as as a Canadian and Canadian growing up in Regina and and and, and really. Uh, for much of my life, seeing a Canadian perspective, I've lived in the United States here for 20 years, and and I see just casual observation, not even uh, not even really related directly to my work. The game is viewed very differently here. So here in Las Vegas, where I live, of course we've had the Golden Knights success, and it's uh, you know it, this has become a hockey mad town, yeah. uh, and that's great. I mean, the Golden Knights have a outstanding business operation. Uh, but it's different. As, again, as a Canadian, it, it feels different to me. It's wonderful for the fans here. It's wonderful for the franchise. But it's entertainment. Um, it, it's purely entertainment. I know hockey's entertainment in Canada. That's where we love hockey. But it, it's more than that. So, uh, you know, and in the book, if I can just, you know, kind of elaborate a bit on a couple of things, mm-hmm. uh, I talk quite a bit about the 1980s Battle of Alberta as yeah. being a very big turning point uh, for me in in hockey in Canada. And it grew out of, in my mind, really, uh, the whole Western alienation. A lot of parallels between the formation of the WHA. It was a bit of a renegade league. It was kind of anti-establishment. The election of Peter Lougheed and the beginning of really a rising West, and particularly a rising Alberta. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to me, there's a lot of rich stories like that, that are no longer really being told. And I think the, the commercialization, the Americanization of the game has really reshifted the focus. You know, it's like, you know, a couple of years ago here with the, the first Battle of Alberta in, you know, what, 30 years-ish, um, kind of at least in most places passed without a whole lot of fanfare. And, and to me, that, that, that's such a rich history of Canada, the West, the rise of the West, and so there's a bit of a lament here, too, on my part, in the sense that I'm, I, I'm concerned that a lot of those stories, particularly to a, a younger generation in both Canada and the U.S., uh, get lost. It is interesting. I mean, you talk about the 80s. I mean, you had, I think it was, what, seven uh, of the Stanley Cup finals in the 80s involved either the, the Oilers or the Flames. Uh, then by the next decade, those two franchises, it seemed like were barely hanging on, right? The, the Quebec Nordiques had to move. The Winnipeg Jets had to move, although Winnipeg did get a team back. But it seemed like it was a real turning point in the 90s where, you know, Canada was you know, at, a, at a disadvantage in a lot of ways. Yeah. Exactly, and and it, it ended abruptly, and and there there were factors I think that occurred. Um, the, obviously, I think what's talked about a lot is the, the the falling Canadian dollar during that time, and that that was uh, really a low point, uh, and it really changed the balance of power in the league. Uh, but I think there were some other factors as well, and and you know I talk about in the book the rise of digital technology and uh, the ability of the U.S.-based clubs, particularly those in larger markets, and at that time, the you know the Detroit Red Wings were a powerful team. Of course, the Rangers and so on, and they, in many ways, almost overnight, were able to dramatically increase the amount of local TV revenues that they were earning. So, if you go back and you track some of of, of these revenues, uh, as as you say, Rob, you know, in, in the '80s. Those, there weren't a lot of revenue differences between uh, the Canadian franchises and, and some of the large market U.S. teams. That that became hugely divergent. So the Flames and the Oilers, for example, during the 80s went from being uh, above average in terms of team payroll 
to within a few years being dramatically below average. And when, you, um, when you're that far below averages on team payroll, inevitably your team's, in most cases, going to get poor on the ice. Right. Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's interesting. I mean, hockey's always been a business. Even the founding of the NHL itself was a result of of feuding between team owners. Right. But now we're in the era of billion dollar franchise valuation, expansion in the U.S., uh, enormous corporate dollars. Like it's it's always been a business, but professional sports is a business now. It's at a whole other level, isn't it? It it is. And I think as an economist, one of one of the issues I raise, and, and I'm certainly not the only one, many of my colleagues who study other sports do, is that the, the, the four major pro leagues in North America are, are, are monopolies, uh, and they control entry. And so we hear we hear discussions about, you know, should Quebec City get a franchise back? What about Hamilton? Uh, what about yeah. you know, uh, Saskatoon, even, if you wanted to take it that far? Um and, 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 and monopolies really uh, earn earn their keep by limiting supply. So we see, you know, historically OPEC and the oil market. I mean, you have to increase or you have to decrease supply to, in, to increase the price. And so when we talk about more franchises in Canada, um, I, you know, it becomes should it be Houston or Quebec City? It, it, mm-hmm. It's never Houston and Quebec City. So. I think for most people that study, there's not really a problem with hockey being a business. I'm, I'm an economist. I spent my entire career in a business school. So for me, that really isn't an issue. But more so, I think it's the way the major pro sports are organized uh, in North America in that the current owners, so the NHL really is the collection of the 32 existing owners. And I think mm-hmm. sometimes we forget that. Uh, so they will act in their own best interests and you know, it's not that a Quebec City couldn't necessarily support an NHL team and be profitable, but is it profitable enough? Are, are the rates of return there sufficient to, to give up this extremely valuable you know, 33rd franchise, the 34th franchise? To me, those are the issues um, beyond just, uh, you know, it should maybe not be a business, and, and, and that's really, uh, you know, not the path I go down in the book. We use the word monopoly. Uh, others have used the word cartel. Did you, is, is it harsh yeah. to call the NHL or these other big uh, sports leagues in North America cartels? Uh, no, I don't think it is. I think I think you know it's it definitely is a cartel, and that there's um, collusion across a wide variety of practices, everything from from drafts to you know new entries into the league and so on. Again, I'm not I'm not the first person to identify that. My colleagues have, have done this for decades, but uh, definitely, I think it's definitely uh, got a lot of cartel-like qualities. Uh, and it's, uh, and I'm not necessarily calling for, for regulation, but if you compare it to, again, European soccer, there's national governing bodies that have some, um, you know, third-party eyes here in terms of uh, what actually uh, you know occurs? So here it's uh, it's simply self-governed by uh, the owners themselves. Yeah. So they will act in their own best interest, and and um, there's nothing wrong with that in a sense. Uh, that's that's their incentive, but it often for for fans or certain fans, and and perhaps for fans in Canada more so than in the U.S. because of the different nature of how we see hockey. Uh, it can have a potentially detrimental effects. So what's good for owners isn't necessarily always good for fans. It's interesting how different it is. You mentioned European soccer, England in particular. The story of AFC Wimbledon is really interesting to me, and people can look it up. But basically, they lost their team. They were expected to still cheer for this team, whatever it was, you know, yeah. 45 minutes away. And they said, well, you know, we're just going to we'll start our own team. We'll start a new team. Yeah. We'll build it from the ground up. And they eventually worked their way up the pyramid and into the professional leagues. But you could never do that in the game of hockey. You can't work your way up into the NHL. No. You need to be admitted into the club, as it were. Exactly. And, and for us as economists, we use the term a closed league, and that's in North America where the existing owners determine who gets in. As opposed to, as you were saying, in, in Europe, with what we call open leagues, uh, with promotion and relegation. So um, the Premier League, let's say in England, uh, 20-team league in a given season, uh, it's been around in that form at least for about 30 years. And I think there's been 50, 51 different clubs that have appeared in the Premier League, at least for one year, um, 
over those during that 30-year time period. So there is no mechanism, there is no entry. Um, so there's no route for, you know, the uh, the Kitchener Waterloo's, the Quebec cities, the Saskatoons, and so on. There's no route for an entrepreneur to come along. Yeah. Um, and say, hey, we're eventually going to work our way into the NHL. So, well, that, I mean, that, just that to bring I it think, full circle, I mean, Saskatoon almost had an NHL team they, well, 40 years ago. They did. And I was living in Saskatchewan at the time, and it was it was heady days for, for a very brief period in 1983 when it, it appeared that finally, uh, and it kind of come out of the blue, pardon the pun, with the St. Louis Blues. I don't think... Uh, People in Saskatchewan never thought they would see the day. It got very close. It was, it was uh, in the end, rejected by the NHL Board of Governors. But the sale of uh, the St. Louis Blues, the then owners, Ralston Carina, to, to Bill Hunter of, yeah, uh, right. of Edmonton Oilers fame and WHA fame, uh, yeah, almost came to fruition. So it was, uh, it was heady days, and then it was uh, very, very sad days soon after. Yeah, and it's impossible to envision now, which shows just how much things have changed. Uh, the book is called A Whole New Game, Economics, Politics, and the Transformation of the Business of Hockey in Canada. Neil, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thanks, Rob. Nice talking to you. Likewise. All the best. There you go. Neil Longley, a Professor Emeritus, the Eisenberg School of Management, University of Massachusetts Amherst, uh, currently Director of Business at Nevada State University, but a Canadian and a hockey fan, and uh, now author as well, A Whole New Game is the title of his book. And I mean, it definitely is, for better and for worse. Uh, that's for sure. Welcome back. Well, five years ago, in fact, I believe it was five years ago this month, uh, Wab Gizig uh, Rice released a novel called Moon of the Crusted Snow. Well, that book became a national bestseller. Uh, that book was uh, award-winning. And so now five years later, he's returned to this story, this story set in a post-apocalyptic world and focusing on uh, members uh, of a First Nation community as they attempt to navigate that new reality. So interesting that this post-apocalyptic novel uh, came out just a couple of years before a global pandemic. The response to that book, as is, is mentioned, was, was quite overwhelming, enough so that have prompted the author to revisit all of this. And uh, he has now released the follow-up, the sequel. It's called Moon of the Turning Leaves. And he's going to be uh, here in Calgary for a WordFest event happening next week, October 30th. More details at wordfest.com. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is journalist, author, Bob Rice. Bob, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Hey, Rob. Thanks a lot for having me. Great to chat with you today. Yeah, likewise. I appreciate this. Now, it is interesting because you, you didn't intend on this book originally to be a, a, a part of a series, right? It was meant to be a, a standalone novel? Yeah, I really just imagined it as one story. And when I was finished writing it, by the time it was put to bed and published, I very much saw the characters riding off into the sunset on their own, you know, <laughs> and that was, and that was it for me. But when I started doing the sort of publicity rounds for it, uh, people would ask me about a sequel and because I hadn't thought about it, I was being honest with them and I would say no. And, uh, you know, they would, you know, be a little bit disappointed. And I remember it was actually in Calgary at WordFest back in 2018. That was probably about my, third or fourth event uh, doing publicity for Moon of the Crested Snow. And I remember someone in the audience asked me, and I said no again, and there was like an audible groan from the crowd. <laughs> no, really? So I thought, holy geez, well, Calgary wants more, so I gotta, you know, start thinking up a sequel, and uh, here we are, five years later. Well, it's interesting, because I mean, you know, for any writer, you want to write something that, that matters to you, that you care about, and create to create a world, to create characters that, that are meaningful to you, but you also hope that, that it resonates with others. So what's that like when, you know, you, you write this book, and it becomes a bestseller, and it generates that, that kind of, of appreciation Appreciation and, and response. Oh, it's it's so overwhelmingly uh, satisfying. You know, it's it's really rewarding to know that people in a lot of places uh, connect with the story and, and overall just enjoy it and are entertained by it. Like that is really really cool, right? And when they want it enough to have a sequel, you know, that of course adds some big time pressure. <laughs> it's like, you know, people will say, will you write a sequel? We want a sequel, but they won't tell you exactly what they want to see in it. So you got to sort of imagine um, what will satisfy them. But more importantly, you know, 
how to do justice to the characters in the original story and the community and imagine a future, a next step for them, I think, in uh, a really fulsome way, right? Considering all kinds of different elements, you know, uh, my own personal vision for the future, the Anishinaabe values I was raised with that I want to instill into the narrative and so on, right? So there's a whole bunch of things to consider. And, you know, I was just really fortunate that uh, it actually came together and happened and that the book is out now. Yeah, I mean, the world's changed a lot since since the first book. Uh, so as, as you write, uh, you know, a, a, a story that's set in kind of a post-apocalyptic world, how's the last few years kind of shifted your, your view on all of that? Oh, it, it, it was weird. You know, I won't lie at all. I uh, My full-time day job was working at CBC. I was a, a radio host for the afternoon show for Northern Ontario for a couple of years towards the end of my CBC tenure. And I left that job uh, specifically to write uh, this sequel. Um, and I signed the contract for the sequel at the beginning of March of 2020. And then, of course, we remember what happened in March of 2020. The pandemic was declared. So our world, everyone's world turned upside down, essentially, right? And and I was like, okay, you know. Now the focus is globally on upheaval and sort of chaos and confusion about what's happening in the future and and that those are some of the things i was trying to wrestle with as well so it was it was weird and, and a little challenging in those first couple months because i was like oh man like are people really going to want to read a post-apocalyptic story as we're going through a major change and right. what many would consider an apocalyptic moment too but uh, you know our family was so blessed in that our second son was born in june of 2020 um so that sort of guided us through that confusion and you know some of that despair essentially and i think it really inspired me to to take a a more hopeful look at what the future can be um with this baby boy just by my side as i was trying to write up the story you know so interesting time for sure yeah and for you you know delving into this world and these characters like for you it's it's also about your relationship your connection to the culture to the community to to the language the heritage so what about that aspect for you oh that's a huge aspect thanks for touching on that rob you know i I grew up in a time in the 80s and 90s when my home community of wasatsing first nation on georgian bay uh, was working hard to reconnect with culture and bring ceremonies back into the community. And, you know, I learned how to drum and dance at powwows and uh, went into sweat lodge ceremonies as a little kid and all that. So um, that was a, a fundamental part of my upbringing, right? That was really foundational for me. And I would recall and was taught by my elders, my parents, my community, fellow community members that, you know, these things have been restored after some major uh, brutality, you know, mm-hmm. uh, as a result of being colonized peoples, right? Like ceremonies were outlawed by the Indian Act. People, uh, some kids were abducted to go to residential school so that they wouldn't have their culture anymore. So, you know, after that sort of apocalyptic moment for our community, things still came back, right? And of course, some things didn't. Some things have been lost, sadly, but some things have been repaired. And there, I was raised with a strong sense of identity of who I was as an Anishinaabe kid. So, you know, that has inspired me to, you know, look to the future and, and just to remember that, no, I'm obviously not predicting any sort of major cataclysm to end the world, right? That's not what I want either. But, you know, I, I, I am inspired by what we've been able to hang on to. And, and I think, you know, that, that can be inspiring for anybody, no matter what their cultural background is. You know, just yeah. have a strong sense of community and try to build a good future for the next generation. Well, there, there's a strong and a very long tradition of, of you know, the Indigenous storyteller, right? And, and in a way, you know, you're carrying on that tradition and what you do. Does that, does that bring with it a, an additional burden or a sense of a duty or responsibility? Yeah, I think so. You know, like I, I learned about my culture as a kid through the spoken stories that were passed down from the elder generations. And that was a really important, uh, I guess, sort of informative practice for me because I would sit in a circle within, with my other peers and, and relatives and so on, and we would spend time with an elder. And, and these elders would proudly 
convey things to us that had been forbidden to share for a long time or they were shamed out of sharing because of you know the dominant culture of Canada. Uh, so I, I had a strong sense of that importance at a really young age. But writing a book is different than that, you know, and there are different sorts of customs that come with writing, you know, compared to telling a story. Uh, but I think that the essence is, is what I want to do is just convey the humanity of, of people in a First Nation, you know, to show that, you know, we have some very specific things from community to community. And of course, every community is different. Every Indigenous uh, nation is different. Um, but there are some universal traits that we all share. And at the same time, there are specific things that we take pride in that make us uh, each unique. And those human aspects can be relatable, uh, regardless of whether someone's Indigenous or not. So that's what I hope people really latch on to in terms of that storytelling responsibility is that, you know, at the core is humanity and, and you know, a, a sense of doing well by our family and, and hoping that uh, our kids grow up in, in, in a good place. Right. And, yeah. and I think that's where the major responsibility lies for sure. And I don't wonder because, you know, the success, that it's not just about your own success. Right. I mean, it shows that there's an audience for these kinds of stories, these kinds of perspectives, does it? Or is it your hope that it it opens the door to, to, to others? Oh, absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, not to speak for like a broad Indigenous experience or for every community, but I think, you know, where I'm from, we are always welcoming people into our circle from all walks of life. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Our neighbors from the town of Perry Sound, Ontario. We want people to share in the beauty of our culture, the richness of our history and our strong sense of community. Um, so, yeah, I definitely want to open the door and, and uh, I want to welcome people in. And I think what you see in terms of uh, literature uh, is a lot more um, uh, prominence of Indigenous books and storytellers out there in, in the mainstream. You know, you see a lot of Indigenous books on bestseller lists and right. on the short lists for prizes and so on. So there's a real appetite um, for uh, of Canadians to really make those connections too. And I think books can be a good outlet for that. And and the question I know you're getting asked, have been asked, will be asked, uh, the trilogy question. <laughs> maybe, it's, maybe it's too soon, but, um, you know, you're going to get that question, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I won't rule it out because I ruled it out last time and look where we are today, right? Yeah, so, exactly. uh, you know, but, you know, if I do explore a third story, it won't be for a while. There, there are some other novels I want to try writing first. Um, and then, you know, I'll plant some ideas in the back of my head. And if they grow into anything, I'll definitely explore them. Well, in the meantime, the new book is out. It's called Moon of the Turning Leaves. And as mentioned, uh, you're going to be uh, in town next week, a WordFest event, October 30th. Uh, more details at WordFest.com. Uh, well, again, congrats uh, on all the success and, and the new book. And thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me, Rob. It's been great to chat with you. So it's been the, uh, the kind of week where... We maybe wished we had our winter tires. Most of us probably didn't. It's tricky to know uh, when to put on winter tires uh, in a climate like Calgary, where we can get a foot of snow in September or uh, get, you know, 15 above in, in December. Uh, but yeah, it's been, uh, it was a snowy, messy, icy week, and uh, there were a lot of crashes uh, out there. And maybe there would have been far fewer, I guess, if, if more of us had uh, our winter tires. I know a lot of us were scrambling to make appointments uh, to get tires changed over, to get winter tires. But there is that, that question every year, right? Is it worth it? And I think right now, you know, as we've been dealing with uh, all kinds of issues around affordability and inflation and, you know, tough times, uh, that, that's a big cost. And so it makes that question, is it worth it, uh, you know, even more, even more relevant, so what do we need to know about winter tires and uh, the case for winter tires and how we factor in the economics? Because remember, even though there's a cost in buying the tires, you're still using your other tires less. Maybe it all balances out. Well, joining us uh, to talk more about uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program, somebody who uh, follows all of this very closely, uh, Ryan Pizolkowski, tire manager, a tire program manager at Consumer Reports. Ryan, I hope I got your last name right, but appreciate you making some time for us here. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, so like I say, this is uh, a lot of your work uh, focuses on, on winter tires, testing various tires. Uh, so first of all, what, for people who aren't familiar, which maybe uh, up here is, isn't a lot, but what's different and unique about winter or snow tires, as we call them? Yes, uh, winter tires, um, or snow tires as some uh, people call them, um, are special tires uh, designed for um, seasonal use. Um, these are tires that have a soft um, compound, a special compound um, in the rubber that allows them to stay pliable and soft uh, when the temperatures drop below, um, you know, below freezing. And they have a tread that's designed um, with lots of little slips, or sipes we call them, mm-hmm. um, to help bite into the icy um, and snowy surfaces. Um, the, you know, the two of those things together is what really make a winter tire um, uh, different than an, uh, a regular all-season tire or a summer tire. Um, now, because of that, these tires are um, they are only to be used in the winter months, um, so, which is why I call them a seasonal tire. They're not a, a, an all-season tire you can use year-round. Um, they, they do everything pretty well, but not everything, um, you know, great. Uh, winter tire um, specializes in one thing, winter traction, and it does that uh, ex- exceptionally well. So if you, uh, you know, you, you live in an area where, there's, you know, you're often driving through um, snow-covered roads or you mm-hmm. need to be to work no matter what, um, a winter tire does make sense. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's not just marketing from the tire companies. Like, there's an Correct. obvious difference, an obvious purpose, yeah. and, you know, there are ways of testing it, right? The, the results are, are noticeable. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a winter tire is in the winter, winter conditions, a winter tire far uh, superior than an all season tire. Now, there is another group of tires to confuse things to call all weather tires. Right. Now, these are tires that have, um, so well, I should start with this. A winter tire has a mountain snowflake uh, symbol on the sidewall. This is a, uh, a, a a symbol on the sidewall that basically tells us that these tire passed an actual test, um, a government standard test that um, says it can, you know, pass this, a certain level of snow traction. Now, all winter tires carry this symbol. All season tires do not carry that symbol. All, this new group of all weather tires also carries that free peak mountain snowflake symbol, but is also a tire that you can use year round. Now, we've tested these tires, and they do add. Um, a level, extra level of snow traction above um, on all-season tire, but they still are not a dedicated winter tire. Okay, and so all-season and all-weather are, are different things. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, which yeah. does kind of confuse. <laughs> as, I, as I say, to confuse things, they, they added this sort of new group of tires uh, called all-weather tires. And these they do work great for people in areas where the roads do, you know, you, you get some snow, but then the roads kind of clear up. Um, yeah. you, you know, you can, or you like to visit the mountains to go snowboarding or skiing. Right. Uh, so talk about some of the work you've done. Like, How do you go about testing uh, winter tires? Yeah, so we, we do a um, – our snow traction test is a, uh, an acceleration test. So we, we use GPS devices on vehicles. We have a, a packed, uh, moderately packed snow surface, a little bit of light snow on top, and um, we do an acceleration test from 5 to 20 miles per hour. Um, we're measuring the distance required to get to um, 20 miles per hour. The idea there is a tire that has more traction um, will get to that speed um, at a shorter distance. So um, it's sort of a best effort test. We kind of spin the tires up and, like, you know, really try to give the tire the benefit of the doubt, and uh, we measure that distance. Now, the other aspect of our winter testing is ice breaking. So we actually stop on ice in an ice skating rink from 10 miles per hour, and we're measuring the distance uh, required to stop from 10 miles per hour. And I would imagine not all winter tires are created equal. So what makes uh, a one winter tire or maybe a certain brand or model better than another? So... Uh, in our testing, what we find is um, most winter tires, almost all of them, are actually quite good in snow and ice, yeah. right? They're designed to do one thing. And when you design a product to do one thing, it's usually, you can usually make it do that pretty well. But the winter tire also gets driven on a dry or a wet road, has to handle, um, it still has some other things it has to do, right? Um, the better winter tires that we see still can manage some um, reasonable stopping distances on dry and wet asphalt. A winter tire in general doesn't do that well um, compared to an all-season tire on dry or wet surfaces. Um, just because of the nature of the soft compound and, the, and the, the, all the siping. So um, in our testing, we've a, 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 a more well-rounded winter tire that has this no traction but can still you know, manage to stop and handle pretty well on those clear roads. Um, that's a tire that usually rises towards the top. So what about the, the economics of it? Because, you know, buying another set of tires does come at a cost, and, you know, money might be tight for a lot of people right now, yeah. or, you know, given the economic pressures elsewhere. But at the same time, if we're using our other tires less, does it all balance out? How, how do we approach that side of it? Sure. So it, it's always hard to, to, to nail a number to it because tire prices fluctuate rapidly, <laughs> especially mm-hmm. with size and um, 
you know, and, and if you have an extra set of wheels, you know, or a winter tire, you're going to have an extra set of wheels likely. Um, and there's a cost associated with maybe storing the tires, switching them back and forth, or you can't do it yourself or restore them yourself. Yeah. Um, yes, but in, in to your point, though, you are wearing, um, you know, now you're spreading the wear out, out, out over, over two different uh, tires. So they are, um, you know, not wearing as quickly, per se. But um, I would argue that it, it's still an added cost. I, I don't think it financially breaks even. But meanwhile, you have a safer vehicle when you are driving through the winter conditions. Um, you know, so that's that's got some weight to it there, right? Yeah. Uh, and there's always, you know, and, and for folks who get winter tires, you know, it's tricky to know when to do the switchover, right? Yeah. How early do you do it? How late do you do you wait to switch them back? Uh, at what point is it a concern that, you're, you know, the, the weather's a little nicer or warmer? Are you doing damage to, to your snow tires? Sure, sure, yeah, um, and, that, and that's and that's a tough one because um, you know down in, I'm down in Connecticut here in uh, on the U.S. and uh, we you know we have we can have a cold day and then the next day it could be 70 degrees again. Yeah, um, exactly. And, you know, the warmer days you're wearing those tires, um, but if you're in somewhere you know where it gets cold quick, um, you know putting them on the sooner you put them on the better because you, you don't want to get caught in those those winter storms. So um, it, it is a, a sort of a tricky. Uh, you know, decision time when when to make that decision. But um, I think the, the, uh, an important thing to think about is when you're purchasing purchasing these tires, um, they only make a limited amount of these tires because they're only sold. You know, um, it's, it's, a, it's a limited market. Not yeah, everyone needs right. a winter tire, so they don't make a ton of these tires. So you got to get you got to kind of get on that earlier in the season. Um, you know, late summer uh, you should be start looking at looking into these, especially if you're in a northern region. Yeah, absolutely. Much more at uh, ConsumerReports.org. Ryan, appreciate the insight on all this. Thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thank you very much. Take care. All the best. You too. There you go. That's uh, Ryan Pizzolkowski, Tire Program Manager, Consumer Reports, ConsumerReports.org. So, yeah, they do a lot of work on this, and, and they put these tires to the test, and they have different ways of doing that. So, yeah, the evidence is pretty clear. I mean, you know, there's a noticeable difference in performance, uh, you know, the, the amount of time and space it takes to stop, all of that when it comes to winter tires. It says, again, all-weather tires, uh, you still get some of that additional performance, maybe not quite to the same level, uh, but that's another way to go. So when it comes to the cost, as he says, look, yeah, it's probably still going to be a net cost to you. It is important to recognize, though, I mean, the, um, the potential savings in making your other tires last longer, but, yeah, there, there is still a cost. So there's always been that debate, right, about should it be mandatory, because it's not just about wanting to keep yourself safe. You know, if somebody else can't stop and they crash into you, it doesn't really matter what kind of tires you have. Maybe they should add winter tires, right? Uh, so I think Quebec has mandated it. I know in BC there are certain highways where you're supposed to have winter tires at certain times of the year. But otherwise, it's, it's still optional for folks. And again, given, you know, the financial pressures people are under at the moment, I don't know how well it would go over to make that mandatory. Uh, but anyway, so some, some insight on winter tires and uh, why, why it might be worth it. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.